0: other world doesn't exist. Ships do not sail across the sky. Buildings tend to stick to their sights. But such stories retain an appeal which is not merely aesthetic. They're a reminder that the way to understanding is not always linear. That the most improbable of paths can lead to the most rewarding of places. That the imagination is the oddest of human faculties and also perhaps the greatest. <laughs>
1: Philip Marsden sets sail along the exposed western coasts of Ireland and Scotland for the Summer Isles, a remote archipelago that holds for him a deep and personal significance. Philip joins us today to talk about his voyage through the seas and through the imagination, the power of myths, and how he wrote his book while also tending to the mental and physical demands of sailing. So now, here is Philip Marsden. Philip, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. So, in your most recent book, The Summer Isles, you set sail from Cornwall on the west coast of England to the west coast of Ireland, uh, where you turn north and go up the coast towards northern Scotland, where the uh, Summer Isles are. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk us uh, about the Summer Isles. Uh, what are they, and what inspired you to go there?
0: Well, they're a sort of small archipelago of um, of, of large uninhabited islands, actually, off off the northwest coast of, of Scotland. They The reason they sort of became the the both the title and the sort of objects in this book are uh, are several, if you you like. I spent a lot of my um, sort of early thirties in the summers uh, with my aunt and uncle who lived up in up in that part of Scotland, and my aunt particularly I became very close to. I was I was writing various books up there, and and she and I would would spend a lot of time hiking in the the highland in the sort of mountains, the peaks off to the west. And there was a particular moment um, often in the late afternoon when you would you would come up over a sort of ridge or at the peak of these 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 mountains and look west over the uh, the minch. Um, this this bit of water between the mainland of Scotland and uh, the Hebrides. And it would be sort of silvery in the afternoon light and the somewhere else would, would be scattered across it um, like some sort of mythical. Not, not, not anything physical at all in a way. Um and so that was that that was by sort of introduction and we had um my aunt and i had this idea that we would um we would visit them but we never managed to and and she died sadly um and so in a way it's a sort of personal way the personal aspect of the um of the journey was was to sort of fulfill that 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 dream of ours to, to reach the summer hours so that was the sort of personal side of it um also, I, I love the, the the title in a way. I mean, the summer hours evokes so much about it, sort of, I, I don't know, sort of lost childhood holidays and islands and somewhere just out of reach. So it fitted in with the sort of some of the themes I was exploring in the journey. And it also enabled me to, as you say, coming from the, the southwest corner of, of, of England, to travel up the sort of western seaboard of, of, of Britain and Ireland in order to get to these islands right off the North coast. So in a way, I mean, it, like most travel books, it was a, a journey to get somewhere rather than to reach somewhere.
1: I see. And so this part of the world, obviously, well, I, I don't know, but um, this part of the world seems to be only accessible in the summer months because it's so far North. Um, so w- was there anything else that attracted you to this apart from kind of the natural beauty and the natural landscape?
0: Oh, yes. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, I mean the main the main theme of the book and the main draw of the book was was the sense of um, of the importance, the sort of mythical importance of of the western seaboard of Britain and Ireland, and the way that the Atlantic coast has attracted um, sort of projections and stories and 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 mythologies and a lot of Irish early Irish literature um, is is to do with sort of exploring those waters, and if you live in if you live in Britain. Um, the West has this sort of imaginary, ethereal sort of sense to it. And um I mean, in, in, in latter days it was called sort of known as the Celtic fringe. And the whole sort of notion of there being the being the Celts who lived off to the West who are sort of completely different from the Anglo-Saxons with their languages, with their sort of slightly um impractical ways and, and all these sort of stereotypes. And and juxtaposed with this sort of the, the order-loving Anglo-Saxons. This, this was an idea that developed particularly in the 19th century, the sort of the, the, the polarized notion of Britain um, and the left-hand side, if you like, the West being the sort of the wilder side. Um, so it had that, you know, I mean, it has that idea both as a as a sort of an actual attraction, but also as a sort of tradition in 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 projection in the way that that people sort of mythologize particular places. And that's a theme that that sort of runs through a lot of my books. It's something I've, I, I've explored in different ways. And, um, you know, so I was, I was very keen to explore it. 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, I I was going to do a book about the Celts, actually, and uh, studied Irish and um, did an enormous amount of research. And then I, I sort of became aware that it, it, it had become a bit of a cliche, um, and like a lot of these things, had sort of been slightly sort of tarnished by uh, oh, I, you know, you go into shops and you find sort of Celtic patterns over coffee mugs and and lots of brooches <laughs> and things with 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 Celtic sort of insignia, and the historical validity of it is sort of dubious, or at least it was exaggerated. So I kind of put that idea uh, to one side, and I, I went off to do other things, and then it sort of combined with this idea of sailing and and exploring the sea. And I sort of drew, I, I dug out that old research and, and, and a bit of the Irish language that I'd, I'd picked up and um, and explored it both as a sort of historical and linguistic um, reality and also as something that's sort of been built up over the years for particular reasons and in different periods.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you brought the mythical importance because it's one of the questions I wanted to talk to you or ask you about, Mm. Um, because, you know, legends and lore, uh, I think the book begins with some mirages or illusions at sea. I don't know if it was the uh, Fata Morgana, but also this idea of searching for lost continents that don't exist. These are threads that go throughout the book. I I think at one point you uh, note that you currently live in a house in Cornwall that was once occupied by a family that spent all their money in search for uh, a fabled island called High Brazzle. Um, could you That's talk? To, right. Could you talk? That was a fascinating story. Can you can you talk to us about um, the well, history of that story, but also, um, ha, you know, how the history and fables of the little villages that you uh, met along the way kind of informed your own quest?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I've been interested for some time about about the way that that particular places and particular sort of physical landscapes. Have the capacity to to sort of generate story and 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 our imagination and um, the last book I I did Rising Ground was about about that in in Cornwall particularly and uh, and the way the landscape generated those stories and in a way an extension of that is is where you invent the landscape itself and uh, islands have this particular I mean real islands have this particular capacity to sort of Embed our ideas in in the physical and, and and allow us to sort of project all sorts of fantasies on them, and that's a, that's sort of a huge tradition, going right back to, um, to to sort of Greek mythology, right forward to to the sort of high end travel travel markets now, where you know islands are sort of secret places where you can do wonderful things. Um, so the idea of a, a place is not existing and just being purely mythical was was something I sort of stumbled across, uh, and it's it's particularly a tradition of the west coast of uh, of Ireland and Scotland in the Atlantic. Uh, I mean, medieval charts are scattered with islands that eventually didn't exist. I mean, the Columbus when he when he went to to seek seek out Cassay or China, his his the chart he had was was covered in islands. There was nothing. There was nothing about a, a sort of huge landmass that, that was to sort of reveal itself as America. It was just islands, and he had this idea that that, that as everyone did then it was that was just a series of islands between between Europe and Asia. Um, and gradually, these these islands sort of became fewer as as as, as the waters were sailed more regularly. But if you, um, I mean, sort of most prevalent of them was was High Brazil, this this island, which. Moves around on different charts, different different corners of the Atlantic, and it was a great sort of quest uh, to go out and and find it. There was um, uh, various accounts of people actually landing on the island. There was a, there was a, an Irishman who who came back with a manuscript, and he managed to sort of support a, a career out of, as a sort of crack doctor with this this manuscript that came from high Brazil, full of all sorts of cures for it, for, for all diseases. Um, and so High Brazil had that and, and, and yes, the family um that I lived uh the, the Arundel family in the in the 70, in the sixteenth century in the Elizabethan times, um they back went back and forth to to, to to Virginia um under under Elizabeth, but one of one of them went off to, to try and ha- seek his fortune and find high Brazil and and, and lost all his money. So um, there's a sort of there's a brief mention of it in a, in a in a manuscript, and the family who were very wealthy then sort of stayed in the neighbourhood and and eventually ended up in the in the farmhouse as rabbit catchers, which I live in. Um, so yeah, there's a connection. And actually, the, the high Brazil itself only disappeared off charts in 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 the mid 19th century. Uh, and if you explore the darker corners of the internet, you'll find all sorts of references to high Brazil. Um so the and and what it, what interested me obviously was 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 the sort of idea of this and how we how we how we sort of elevate the the, the real world um, and and sort of with our imaginations make it something more than it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and particularly in the Atlantic, there's always been that sort of thing of going west and seeking seeking new worlds and new ideas and new places. Tiernanog, the island, the the irish island of uh, of eternal youth. Is is out there somewhere in the Atlantic, as is the Isles of the Blessed. And so, yeah, there there are all these sort of different, different, what a wonderful ideas and and, and sort of literary references to places. Uh, And the idea of a sailing trip was to to sort of play about with that um, and show how sea voyages, in a way, have that sort of slightly mythical um, trusting to luck element to them.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I and mean, just as a side note, I, I was looking at some old maps, uh, ancient maps from around the world, um, you know, re- reproduced in a book. And, you know, many of these old maps, the political power who creates the map is at typically at the center of the world. But it's often kind of depicted as, as an island, right, with the other nations, a series of islands around there. I'm thinking of some of the, the, the ancient Chinese uh, maps do that in the same way. Um, you know, maybe there's something here with the connection to like a primordial flood or or something just kind of deeply ingrained with the idea of island and, and humanity,
0: yeah, and land being land being a sort of isolated thing, you know like like us as a species surrounded by this sort of infinite element of of water, which was how it was perceived earlier mm-hmm. on, and in a way we still have it with the with the universe the sort of astronomical universe out beyond us. Um, and being a sort of lone planet in that, in that sort of eternal void.
1: Yeah. So you, you mentioned, um, your, your trip. Can you, can you talk to us about the logistics of your trip? Like what, what kind of boat did you have and what kind of experience did you have before this?
0: Well, yes, I, I, I mentioned that it it was a sort of, um, a combination of things, you know, like, like a lot of journeys, a lot of books are, they sort of various things coalesce and, and and the time and the place and and the means sort of come together, and I've um, I've sort of messed around on boats all my life. I was brought up, my grandfather was a great sailor. Um, he taught me to sail, and, and so summer holidays were sort of messing around in, in boats with him. And um, as a teenager, I I loved sort of hopping up and down the coast on on other people's boats. And I'd been a sort of day sailor most of my life, and had little boats around um, the Fal Estri where 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 I live in Cornwall. Um, and sort of hopped around there and done a few a few sort of longer journeys, but always with other people, um, a skipper and, and other people's boats. But I had this idea as most people do, you know, who, who, who spend time on the sea that, that, you know, you want to kind of get your own boat and you want to go off and explore on your own. Um, so I, I, I got hold of a, um, because my grandfather loved wooden boats. I, 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 found a wooden boat. And I felt that, you know, boats had to be wooden. There's a sort of mystique about them as there is about all boats, you know, there's a sort of semi animate, um, personality people, people give to, to their boats and for me, yeah. And, and, and there's a lovely adage. I mean, it's completely impractical and they're, they're sort of, you know, I mean, they're very good, but they're very problematic to sort of keep going. There's a, there's a nice adage that, that some, the friend told me, and, um, in, in the sailing village where where I hang out a bit, was he said, if you, you know, if you don't like someone, um, leave them a boat in your will. But if you really don't like them, leave them a wooden boat <laughs> because <laughs> it's, it becomes a kind of albatross. You, you know you can't really get rid of it and you have to kind of keep keep going. Um, but they are wonderful. I, I find this boat uh, built in the mid 60s um, a, a, a very good designer, and they have qualities that that, that newer boats don't. Um, the sort of smell of them, the creak of them. So she is a 31 foot, 32 foot sloop um, with just a headsail and a mainsail. And um, I sailed across to Southwest Ireland with one other person because the, over a three day period, I, I, with the passages and, and the watches you had to keep, I didn't want to do sort of nighttime single handed sailing. But I hadn't really, I, I had very little experience as, as single handed Sailor and I, I hopped up the west coast of Ireland, which is pretty exposed and pretty rugged and pretty um, sort of beaten by the Atlantic. And um, it was a, it was a sort of idea conceived in my. My sort of the warmth of my studio with lots of books and, and, and accounts of previous things you know all sorts of things you can sit you can sit in the studio and dream up all sorts of journeys which <laughs> which then are very different when you um when you actually do them so I, I i waved goodbye to this friend of mine um in dingle on the southwest corner of, of ireland and uh was was then committed I, i'd actually had the idea that anyone who knows the geography of, of ireland i mean i, I went to dingle with the idea that actually I'd sail up all my friends who were much more experienced sailors than than I, they said, look, if you want to do this, don't go up the West coast, just go along the South coast and go up the Irish sea, which is between the coast of Wales and Ireland. And it's a much, you know, it's a much easier sail. And they said, don't, for God's sake, don't go anywhere near the West coast. And and I, you know, sensibly took that advice and and, and went to Dingle. But when I was in Dingle, something happened, I didn't know what it was, but I, I changed my mind anyway and uh and went up the west coast and it's the book the stories wouldn't have existed if i hadn't done that because really that's where i mean that's where my my themes were that's where all the sort of most interesting places are the sort of these these semi inhabited inhabited once inhabited islands are all scattered along along the west coast so i was really um that's what i was sort of after Mm -hmm. And I just had to endure, you know, a few... bumps and scrapes and a few kind of anxious moments, um, in order to get, to to get to these places, but it, but it was worth it. I mean, I can sit there, you know, sit here now sort of having done it all, um, say it was absolutely worth it. But at the time it was, it was, um, I don't mind admitting it was pretty, um, pretty scary.
1: So when your friends advised you not to go to the West coast of Ireland, it was because it was exposed, rocky, violent waters. Can you, I guess, um, paint us a picture of what that geography looks like—is it just kind of jagged rocks, po- you know, it, poking yes, out of it, the water, and
0: it's a, lot of, a lot of rocks. I mean, a lot of um, some of them uncharted, but but actually, not many harbors. And you get from the Atlantic, the prevailing wind is 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 the westerly that drives straight in across from the east coast of, of of the United States, and builds up, you know, huge swells. And you get this actually the the the, the summer I was sailing, as so often, you get this sort of queue of Low-pressure systems that, that come in with with, with violent winds um, and then leave, maybe a day or so when you can sort of hop hop up to the next harbour. But there aren't there aren't a great number of good harbours. Um, and of course, you can sit out you know in a boat in a decent harbour. You can sit out anything um, as long as you're sort of vigilant. But um, if they're few and far between, you have to sort of be that much m- more careful. Uh, and the coast is, is 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 sort of beautifully um broken up it's like someone sort of taken a a hammer to a bit of toffee and it's sort of shattered mm. over in, in a lot of places um, and but of course it's much you know it's incredibly beautiful it's um very dramatic um, and and the people that live there are, are sort of you know wild and wonderful and and, and committed to that to that sort of environment and there's you know there's, there's huge traditions like the monastic tradition the, the early christian centuries had these sort of Monks who would live off on the most remote rocks and islands off the Western seaboard and often just sail off west into the, um, they became white, what's called white martyrs and it would just sail off from these rocks into the Atlantic, never to be seen again. But so it has these sort of layers of association with it. Um, but it is it is spectacular. I mean, if you're you know, as long as you can relax a little bit, which can not happen that often, but it is it is incredibly beautiful. Um, and of course, you know, it's, I mean, I mean, one of the joys of sailing is that you 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 sort of spend you know twelve hours at sea doing a sort of passage, and you come into a. A sort of remote anchorage um, and and you sit there and everything's sort of done and 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 you're surrounded by this 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 extraordinary sort of seascape and landscape and it's 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 rewarding because of the the challenge that you've just just undergone. So that's I mean you know that that's the pattern of of so many journeys. You you can't you know if it's all mild and easy it's 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 not rewarding in any way.
1: Mm-hmm. So you'd mentioned Going from Cornwall to Ireland was about three days at sea, and as you go up the west coast, uh, you're stopping at these little villages and these little ports. And yes. and so, did you kind of moor to a pier and and stay each night in a different village as you went up, or how did right. how well, did that work? What,
0: what would happen? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it was different. Sometimes it was anchored, sometimes it was a mooring, sometimes yeah, alongside a quay. Um, there there were one or two marinas you could pop into those um but i would typically sort of say you know do a passage to what to, to the next harbor um and then the weather would come in and it, it, it could i could be a week there but the great thing was was that that enabled me to sort of follow up these stories and meet people and just you know because if you're hopping from one place to the other you don't really sort of get to know anyone get to know the sort of what's going on underneath or have the opportunity to find leads and follow them up. So it suited, it suited me very well that, that, that I would sort of look for a window in the weather, have a sail up to, to a harbor, you know sit out of a storm, but at the same time sort of go ashore and, and, and hang out with people. and of course if you if you arrive particularly if you're on your own at sort of quite quite a remote harbor or anchorage, you know people are quite um, surprised and almost sort of quite protective about you know towards you so it, it was it was quite a quite a good way into communities. Um, I, either on the islands or on the mainland. I mean, I I spent. I mean, most of that journey was actually staying on islands. Um, you know, hopping from island to island. I did did get to the mainland a little bit, but, but, but for sort of, you know, several weeks at a time, I was I was actually going from from, from island to island because because there are so many of them.
1: Just a quick note, and we'll get right back to the interview. If you enjoy the podcast please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app or consider supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com slash support. Thank you. Yeah, this is a, as you refer to, this is a very kind of active type of uh, difficult type of, of traveling um, where you're doing, you know, the physical and stressful work of navigating rough waters and trying not to crash and, um, you know, and you're, you're visiting different islands. So uh, I'm just thinking here, like, how are you doing the, the, the writing uh, on this journey? Like, are you taking notes? Uh, what is question, that like?
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I mean, of course, and you know, I'm, I'm used to try, I mean, I'm, I've done a lot of journeys and, 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 and travel books and, um, I, I, I like to travel on my own uh, because for all sorts of reasons things happen to you more you, know, you have your own thoughts. so that's that's one of the reasons I, I chose to be single-handed um, but it did it, but it does enable you to have a lot of time and I had uh, in the in the, the, the saloon as it's called of the boat' this lovely sort of wooden timbered um, space down, down below with with bookshelves either side. Um, and the sort of gales, you know, hammering outside while I sat at anchor. So that was where I did a lot of um, a lot of reading, and a lot of writing and a lot of piecing together stories. Um, and then at sea, actually, I, I mean, when I was sailing, there's a lot to do, actually. You don't I mean, because the, I, I developed this idea, which I think is I think is absolutely true, that. The, the, the basis of all good seamanship is is anxiety really I mean if you're not anxious then then things go wrong so you're want a state of anxiety sort of low-level anxiety um, the, the the real anxiety is, is is when you're on the on the harbor side deciding waiting to go off that's that's the the really nasty time um, when you're at sea you sort of deal with things but but you're always busy. There's always sort of things to tinker around with or to check, you know, and and, and the log to fill in. Um, and I did do a lot of writing, but but I, I had this idea before I went that I would sort of you know put the autopilot on and you know point the boat at whatever uh, bearing was to the next harbour and, and sit down with with sort of you know a nice pile of books and notebooks and just sort of you know scribble away and contemplate in, in that way. But but the state I was in was not not like that. And equally when when I got to um to a you know to a harbor or an anchorage when, when everything was sort of settled there was always things to fix you know things I mean when you go whenever you get on the water something breaks or something is not quite right and you have to fix it to sort of make sure you can get to the next one safely so again the idea of sort of sitting down with a pile of books it did happen but mainly it sort of happened I was sort of finishing off this job or, or, or trying to do that and snatching snatching time but it, it, in a way that's that's I find that's sort of much more productive I've always found writing if you clear the decks and you sort of you know you you have your sort of iddle of before I was, had a family before I was married you know I'd have sort of no visitors and you'd have weeks ahead um to you know to to, to bury yourself in a project and very often that wasn't as productive as when you know when there were sort of deadlines people ask you to write something or they have visitors or, or whatever it was but you know that that, that sort of um, jumble of, of of real life is is often better uh, and more more kind of productive in terms of thinking about things and um, and just producing that just being that state of mind that produces the stuff for a book you know and, and allows you to develop a story so in that way kind of being at sea and and, and the, the the need for kind of diligence and 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 the practical I'm not I'm not a practical person but the thing of of getting out the toolbox and having to you know, fix this or fix that. Uh, because if you didn't, you know, you'd be at sea and you'd get into trouble. You know, that that sort of imperative was very good, actually. And of course, all the other hours I had were, were spent reading and um, talking to people and gathering stories and researching and, you know, making notes.
1: Oftentimes in the book, you write about the kind of local lore of these places that you come upon. And you know, obviously there's kind of an, an element of spontaneity here when you're traveling and you're by, by, by boat and relying on weather and storms and those types of things. But to, to what extent were, um, you know, the, which islands that you would visit and, and therefore which kind of stories you would talk about uh, part of the kind of pre-research and writing phase or, um, you know, were they uncovered to you as you were going along spontaneously?
0: yeah that's that's a good question um of course before i went i had um i had kind of notebooks full of you know places i wanted to go and and, and the sort of stories around them and people i wanted to meet but you're, you're quite right you know very often it was the weather that actually decides decides where you can go and yeah i mean a lot of those i mean the Aran islands for instance is a, a sort of group of islands halfway up the western uh, the west coast of ireland they're, they're extraordinarily rich and, and play a huge part in in the sort of sense of, of Irish nationhood and um what's distinct about it. Um sorry Jeremy, are you picking out background noise of kids?
1: I am, but uh it's the real <laughs> real world. It's fine. Okay, because okay, I can go and sort of, you know, find no, no,
0: no, no, the screen the the house and put them in front of it. Okay, fine. Well let's 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 that's let, real with it. So yes, I mean there's you know, I I'd long um, wanted to sort of explore and had visited before actually a group of islands called the, the Aran Islands, which are halfway up the, the West coast of Ireland. And they, they played this extraordinary role in, well, in, in the sense of, of Irishness, um, and, and the Irish language. Uh, it's one of the, the Gaelthaus where Irish is still spoken. Um, and they were visited by, uh, by seeing and, and all sorts of people they have they always sort of cropped up in, in, in things and that I did spend I, I did spend time exploring but other ones um Inish Boffin uh Claire Inish Turk there was this tiny yes lovely island called Inish Turk which is 54 people lived on um and I just stopped off there on the way and actually the, the, the weather was coming in so I had to sort of bolt in there and a community that size is is extraordinary you know it's, it's 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 a a few families and you get to know within a few days you you know everyone um and i got to see you know amazing amount of people and there is yeah and I, on in his i heard of this uh this island that was um an island it was sort of at low water you could walk across to it and there was one man who lived there Mm-hmm. um so i was storm on this boffin and, and and went and explored that island and, and interviewed that that man um so you do you know i've always i've always had a plan of of, of an itinerary and a route which is always sort of you know disrupted at the, at the first stage um and you know you kind of stick to some of the things you get and some of the some of the things you you get sort of spontaneously um and scotland the the the, the coast of scotland has even more islands off it than, than Ireland. And there you can really just go to any, you can point your boat in any direction and come across the most extraordinary places.
1: Yeah, th- this is um, a very kind of rich book. I think the kind of book that one needs to spend uh, time with to, to understand all the nuance and, you know, all that's packed into this book. I mean, there's there's a lot here to do with, uh, as we talked about, you know, literary um, history. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to deal with, you know, asides on, on nostalgia. There's that personal element. And of course the, the, the adventure element. So it has like all, all the good elements of a, of a travel book. Um, and so I need to spend some more time with it. Um, but it was a really good book. And I was wondering if you could, uh, perhaps close out the conversation with maybe a, a reading from the book.
0: Yes. So this is a passage from um, just from the, the the beginning of the journey towards uh, just, just just north of, of Dingle, where I started on the on the Irish coast, um, coming up the west coast from from Feenit. So I left Phoenix, dropped the lines, motored out of the harbour, coming round into Tralee Bay. I headed first south, then west before my bows settled just shy of north. There, the sea and sky were sucked into the same hazy void. Some 60 or 70 miles inside it were the Aran Islands, which give even the Blasket Islands a good run in the mist-making stakes. I planned to break passage to them with a stop in the Shannon Estuary. Flicking on the helm, I went forward to sort out the cordage. In the gentle swell, I leaned against the mast, coiling and tidying, checking the sheets and the wear mark that had appeared on the main halyard. The Kerry Mountains filled the sky astern. For the next two hours, they grew no smaller. Their rocky contours softened and turned a paler blue, but their presence remained on the parapet of the horizon. Bina Ski, Strad Valley, and largest of all, Mount Brandon. I remember a story told to Robin Flower on the Blasket Islands, of a church in a churchyard floating up into the air and drifting off to look for a new site. In medieval Ireland, ships were often seen crossing the sky. At Clonmacnoise on the Shannon, a vessel once passed overhead and the monks spilled out of church to grab at its hanging anchor. High above them, they watched the sailor jump overboard and swim down to free it. The monks held on to the sailor. For God's sake, he cried, let me go, you're drowning me. Some bar of Cork was once out at sea in a ship when he spotted St. Skohin having a walk. How is it that you're walking on the sea? Barra asked. Because it is not the sea, explained Skohin. It's a field. And he bent down to pick a crimson flower. St. Barra, for his part, leaned down, scooted up a dripping salmon, and lobbed it to Skohin. A similar story is told in the Imran Brown, The Voyage of Brown. Two days in the ocean passage to the other world, Brown's spots a chariot coming towards him over the waves. It's driven by Manan Machliah, God of the Sea, and he calls out in verse to Bran and his sailors, saying, in verse, What is a clear sea? For Bran's skiff is a happy plain thick with flowers, to me and my wheeled chariot. Speckled salmon leap from the womb of the white sea on which you look. They are calves, they are coloured lambs. Such stories are more than but just picturesque, they're subversions. They undermine those rules which appear to be most fixed, that what is heavy shall drop, and what is land is solid, and what is sea is liquid. In political terms, they're the hopeful musings of people's denied agencies by a stifling priesthood and harsh occupation. More universally, the tellings and retelling depend on the agreed nature of the other world. A place just behind the surface of this one, where earthly constraints fall away. Here, all things are possible, wrote the Celtic scholar John Carey. Opposites can exist without conflict, essences and attributes can be isolated and transferred. In our empirical age, we have no more use for such notions. The other world doesn't exist. Ships do not sail across the sky. Buildings tend to stick to their sites. If an island is not on the map, it isn't anywhere. But such stories retain an appeal which is not merely aesthetic. They're a reminder that the way to understanding is not always linear. That the most improbable of paths can lead to the most rewarding of places. That the imagination is the oddest of human faculties, and also perhaps the greatest.
1: You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.